We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we focus on the intersection of Judaism and pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we're talking about the new film, Dune, streaming now on HBO Max. This is the epic sci-fi film, Dune Part 1. We know there'll be a sequel uh, based on the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert. We saw this movie in different iterations in decades past, specifically David Lynch's 1984 film. Mike, what can you tell us about this new Dune? Okay, so like you said, uh, Dune uh, was uh, just released a few weeks ago. It's available on HBO Max, still uh, uh, in theaters uh, everywhere as well. Uh, Clearly, as we'll discuss in a little while, this movie was uh, intended to be seen in theaters and and arguably on the biggest screen possible. Uh, Large portions of it were were shot uh, specifically for IMAX. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so it's, a, I think, an interesting conversation about um, whether one who has watched it uh, on their home theater, their home television, um, has gotten the, uh, the, the, the intended Dune experience. Uh, and like you said, uh, based on the uh, novel and uh, novel series uh, from uh, beginning in the 60s, uh, by Frank Herbert called Dune, uh, and uh, not to be confused, of course, with the uh, 1984 David Lynch film Dune, which is just chef's kiss. Love that movie. Um, although I, I recognize it's a, uh, a very polarizing uh, in fandom and has become, become something of a cult classic for that reason. Uh, and um, oh, it's just it's just a lot and it's a it's a mess, but it's but it's a, a glorious mess. Uh, and then there was a, uh, a, a television miniseries on the Sci-Fi Network uh, about 10 years ago, uh, also based on the story. That's also something to keep in mind. As you said, Jesse, this is uh, billed as Dune Part 1. It was uh, unclear uh, when the movie was uh, first released whether there would be a Dune Part 2. It was uh, a wait-and-see proposition uh, from the studio, from Warner Brothers, to see if it would... Uh, be profitable enough to make uh, Dune Part Two, and uh, they just confirmed uh, shortly after the film's release that they're that they will be uh, greenlighting Dune Part Two. So we'll at least see um, the second part of this movie because the film uh, was clearly intended to be part one of at least a two-part series. I think from for me, not even getting into the plot yet, um, but it's a, a, a an open question about why in the era of peak TV. Uh, and a streaming in the era of Game of Thrones and you know really big budget high quality uh, 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 streaming series, uh, we didn't get a Dune series, uh, and instead we're getting a Dune um, cinematic universe. I don't know what we're going to be getting. Money. Um, it's all about money, right? This was filmed pre-pandemic. It was supposed to come out uh, December, I believe, of 2020. Uh, and was delayed because of the pandemic. 
Yes. No, I, 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 I get that. I just, I just wonder, um, I'm not for many reasons. I'm not a, uh, Hollywood executive. I just wonder if, uh, the, the, uh, profit calculus, um, would have been better, uh, if it were a, a series in the vein of game of Thrones or the new, uh, Lord of the Rings series that's coming out on Amazon or something like that. Right. That, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's worth discussing. You could have the same cat. You could have the same cast, right? The same cast mm-hmm. would 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 play in a you know marquee HBO Max, Apple TV Plus, you know uh, series, uh, um, and, and the budget could theoretically be the same, um, right? But you would um, uh, but you would have more opportunity to explore the the world. It, you know, you could wring profit out of it, arguably for longer because it's a streaming series. I don't know. We're, we, this is all sort of an aside. We can maybe get into this when we talk about uh, the, the meta question and the meta conversation about uh, about the uh, delivery system, the venue. <laughs> right. But first, let's talk about the movie itself, Mike. Yeah. Uh, a all right. movie so that, movie... unlike other sci-fi movies, uh, is not a, an alternative world, the reality that this movie intentionally takes place in the future of this world. Right. So uh, this uh, this movie, like you said, takes place in the future of our world, our galaxy. It obviously takes place uh, mostly off world, off Earth, um, but the, it's, uh, in the year ten thousand one hundred and ninety one. OK, so uh, always in uh, in sci fi of this vein, uh, you know, a question that emerges is, you know, what is the film saying or what is the book or story saying about right now? By setting, uh, by by talking about what happens ten thousand years from now or eight thousand years from now, um, the movie centers on uh, uh, a uh, a future galaxy uh, of ours uh, where interstellar travel is possible, uh, made possible by uh, the most valuable uh, resource in the universe, which is commonly known in this universe as spice. Um, spice is available on only one planet in the entire galaxy, and that's a, a desert planet called Arrakis, uh, or as it is commonly uh, known, Dune. Uh, and uh, uh, there is an empire uh, that controls uh, everything in this uh, galaxy. We uh, are uh, the, the movie spends time talking about uh, this empire and the powers that be, although we don't see the emperor, though he is, uh, uh, I assume it's a he, is spoken about off screen. Um, and there are uh, powerful families all, you know, vying for their own position and profit and prominence um, within this uh, within this uh, universe. Uh, most notably, at least in this uh, first story, uh, House Atreides, which is uh, uh, led by Duke Leto Atreides, played in the movie by Oscar Isaac, uh, and uh, his son and heir to the throne of uh, House Atreides, um, Paul, uh, uh, played by uh, Timothée Chalamet. Um, The Atreides' chief rivals are uh, the Harkonnens, House Harkonnen, and uh, House Harkonnen is uh, controlled uh, by um, Vladimir Harkonnen, uh, played by uh, Stellan Skarsgård. Uh, and uh, these are the main uh, rivals for power uh, underneath the emperor's thumb in the universe. Uh, House Harkonnen um, has had the exclusive rights of um, mining spice in Arrakis 
uh, until the emperor uh, rescinds their license and gives it to House Atreides, which starts a conflict or, or a, a hot war between uh, House Harkonnen and House Atreides. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Paul, who is uh, the, the heir to House Atreides, brilliant and gifted young man, uh, and uh, uh, has uh, a sense that he has a, a destiny beyond his current understanding, uh, made partially possible uh, by uh, not only his uh, powerful father, but also his intriguing mother, the uh, uh, Duke Atreides' concubine, uh, Lady Jessica, uh, who has uh, magical powers uh, and has uh, bequeathed these magical powers to her son, Paul. Um, uh, so the movie is about um, is about colonialism and exploitation and uh, and, and uh, uh, conflict and power, um, wizardry and magic, and of course, the universe's finest warrior in the year 10,000, a time when there are names like Leto Atreides and Chani and, uh, and Harkonnen, uh, the greatest warrior of all time in the year 10,000 whatever, a man named Duncan Idaho, played by uh, the uh, the inimitable Jason Momoa. I just, that tickles me to no end that, uh, that in this universe, the main uh, warrior is named basically um, uh, Frank uh, Wisconsin. Well, he's probably not that good of a warrior if you watch the movie. Spoiler alert. Um, this movie was a lot. <laughs> I mean, you could tell from the description, it's impossible to give a succinct description of, uh, of the world that is Dune. And, and, and clearly the, the, the uh, filmmaker, uh, Dennis uh, uh, Bienvenu, uh, who is a sci-fi auteur, he directed the most recent Blade Runner movie, um, has big visions for, uh, for, for this story and for this universe. Yeah, I didn't love it. Um, I never read the books. Um, I sort of remember watching the, the David Lynch film, um, but I was intrigued by the, the trailers because it looks beautiful. I mean, they filmed on location in Budapest and Abu Dhabi and Jordan, Norway, I think. Uh, and it looked beautiful. I just thought the movie was pretty boring. Um, I also thought as much as Dennis Vanvenu really criticizes Marvel and like superhero films, I feel like the casting like desperately wanted to be a superhero film. I mean, they like, who, who, who do they have? Oscar Isaac. He was in Star Wars and is in Marvel. Josh Brolin in Marvel. Stellan Skarsgård in Marvel. Dave Bautista in Marvel. Zendaya in Marvel. David Dash uh, Dasmalchian in, in Marvel. Uh, Jason Momoa in DC. Like they desperately wanted people who are superhero movie fans to turn out, except uh, it didn't deliver that same experience. It was beautiful. Uh, although I watched it on like my 65 inch TV and not on a screen. So I don't know how beautiful it could have been if I watched it in the movie theater, which I think was Dennis Van Venu's uh, vision for it. I just thought not enough happened because it wasn't like a movie with a cliffhanger. It was, here is half of a full story. 
which right. again is doable when you're watching Game of Thrones from week to week. I don't right. think it's as doable when you're watching half of a movie. And you don't have the other half. Listen, you could do that with like Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, like part one, because it's whatever it is, like the seventh movie in the series. So people are established in the world of Harry Potter. You could turn uh, the Hunger Games uh, movie, that third book into two parts. That's fine. But when you're being introduced to the Dune world, it's very hard to do it that way. Well, listen, I mean, since we're talking about this, I think that this, uh, you know, is is one data point in the way um, uh, film had has influenced, uh, you know, what we now call the era of peak TV. And now the era of peak TV is really influencing what's happening in movies. And, and, and all these things are kind of blending into just one thing. Uh, you know, arguably, that's that's exactly the model that Marvel employs in in its movies. I mean, it it, it makes a different kind of movie. It tries to deliver a different kind of experience, more action packed, you know, more crowd pleasing, you know, more funny, quippy, that sort of thing, right? So it's a different maybe genre of TV show, um, but essentially, right? Uh, Marvel has um, a uh, uh, a, a, a peak TV franchise. It's just some of the things are on the are are made for the big screen. Some of the things are made for the small, small screen. Some things are slightly bigger events, and some things are are less big events. But now Marvel is now producing, you know, um, a peak TV streaming series as well. Um, and so those l- lines are becoming much more blurry. And I think that that's what but that was uh, right. Twenty seven projects that it took them to develop this cinematic universe. Well, uh, yes, that's true. But it also, you know, if you think about it, it. it uh, you know, it came out like when when Iron Man and the Hulk first and the Incredible Hulk first came out. Um, it was really uh, close to the beginning of the peak TV era. So like that that melding of of formats um, hadn't fully happened yet. It was I think um, uh, I think it was happening kind of simultaneously while the Marvel Cinematic Universe was building. I think Kevin Feige um, uh, foresaw that. Uh, uh, happening, um, and so was able to, um, uh, you know, get in on the ground floor of that transition and help maybe accelerate that transition. Um, but you know, not not long into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like that was exactly what was happening. It was different, I think, than the Harry Potter series, um, which was much more traditional traditional um, franchise uh, when it comes to, uh, when it, when it comes to film. Um, but you have here, I think that what, you know, what, uh, uh, Dennis Bienvenue is creating is Game of Thrones, uh, for the big screen, who knows how many, you know, films, uh, he's envisioned, right? This is Dune part one, but who knows if he's envisioned Dune part 15, right? Maybe there's going to be that many, uh, films if they keep on being profitable. Um, but the difference you're right is that, you know, there's, like in Game of Thrones, it took me an episode or two to really get into it. Um, it, it had a lot of world building to do, and it was sort of slow and ponderous uh, for that reason. You know, fortunately, at the beginning of, of Game of Thrones, you did have that like you know cliffhangery hook of the of spoiler of, uh, alert. Or, spoiler alert! Uh, yeah, I know it's been out for like you know uh, twelve years at this point. So if you haven't, if, if you don't know what happened in Game of Thrones. I can't help you anymore. But um, but when you know Cersei and uh, and uh, Jamie um, are are you know discovered uh, to be in a torrid romantic affair uh, and uh, little um, uh, with which uh, um, 
which kid was it? Um, Brandon Stark um, is pushed from the from the tower. Anyway, so that had a real cliffhanger, right? So you don't have that in uh, in in Dune, and so so it'll be you know for you know I think we're fortunate that we're going to get the second second. Uh, part of this, I think it was not a foregone conclusion. And I agree with you that it was not that satisfying of a film experience because of that. I agree with you that it was um, extremely beautifully shot. Um, and the story is intriguing. There were definitely, whenever Stellan Skarsgård was on screen, right, whenever it, it transitioned to what was happening over in whatever the home planet of the Harkonnens was, I was intrigued. Once we got uh, into the world of the, um, remind me, Jesse, the name of the people who inhabit Arrakis. Um, you mean the, the sand people? <laughs> the sand people, yeah. Uh, the Jawas. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the people of, of Arrakis. Um, you had to look it up too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's how, how much I, uh, the, uh, the, yeah. the, uh, the, the Fremen. The, the Fremen, yeah. All right, we're going to have some uh, Dune fan uh, fanboys uh, adding us about this. Um, sorry that uh, that we're like your grandparents who are who are discussing uh, this uh, this series and this franchise. But um, you know, so I, I think like getting into their world, which I presumably we're going to get more of in the next installment, um, that was compelling, right? There were uh, there were, there were moments in this that were extremely compelling. I do wonder if the overall experience would have been better, more immersive, um, less tedious if I wasn't watching it at home with all of the attendant distractions that I have in my home that I don't really have or I'm able to tune out much more when I'm in a movie theater. Mike, we had this conversation when we watched uh, Wonder Woman 1984, which neither of us liked, but we wondered if it would have been better on the big screen instead right. of on HBO Max. Um, and that was at a, a different point right? In the pandemic. That was before any of us were vaccinated. All of our institutions were still totally virtual. Um, we're at a point now where at least, you know, my synagogue, I know your synagogue to a large extent as well, is doing a lot of things in person again. Um, a lot of people are starting to travel again. Kids are back in school. The world is sort of Listen, the pandemic's still going on, and yet the world is trying to adjust to it and get back to some sense of normalcy, which makes the way we did stuff before in the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, much harder. Uh, Zoom was fine when we weren't in person. Zoom is much harder now that we've been back in person again. And I wonder if it's kind of like that. I've been back to the movie theaters, right? I saw Shang-Chi and Black Widow, Eternals, uh, Free Guy. Like, I've been going to the movies it's hard to appreciate a movie that you're watching on your couch in the same theatrical experience when you've gone to the movies and then you're not having that experience here. So it's, to me, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, so I have not been to the movie theater yet. I tried to go to the movie theater to see um, no time to die. The, the most recent bond film I got about, 15 minutes into the movie before I got freaked out and left the theater. So, you know, I mean, there is that, at least for me. Um, and I feel that, you know, in a, in a crowded synagogue too now, even if we're all wearing masks and even if we have a vaccine requirement, both of which are true in my, in my synagogue. And I'm 
you know, I get to be on the Bema. So I, I have the luxury of being in the least amount of contact with people if I choose to be. Um, but I still feel very um, uncomfortable about it. You know, uh, uh, infection rates are still, there's still high rates of transmission in my area. Um, so I, I think that we're still living in this reality um, and, and maybe the lingering impact of that um, will be with us for a long time. So my feeling about being in a space like a like a crowded synagogue um, is different. So when I you know have a Shabbat off now and I you know tune into uh, to another shul on live stream, I actually in some in some ways am much more able to get lost in the experience of being in the in the service, being at home than I am if I go to shul where I'm much more self conscious about everything that's going on. So that's number one. Number two is. Um, you know, uh, I think that the the films that you mentioned that you've gone to see and the one that I tried to see but didn't make it all the way through are big events, right? Like you are not yet going back to the movies, you know, on just casually on your day off for whatever happens to be at the multiplex. Um, and I think that that's also, uh, that's also something to, to bear in mind. We already have that for Jewish life. Like there, it was all already the case for a long time that most people only came to synagogue on the high holidays. But now actually we have a different phenomenon, which is interesting, is that that's still true, uh, whether they're coming in person or logging on, like that's the highest volume. But I have any number of people, now that my services continue to be available on live stream and Zoom when they weren't before, who are logging on to services and participating in services when they would have only been high holiday Jews in the past. So it opens up opportunities for people to, to see and experience things um, uh, on a more regular basis uh, than they may not before because it lowers the barrier for entry. It makes, it, it's less of a commitment, right? If you get bored, you could just mute it and go do something else for a little while. You, you could pause it and come back to it. Absolutely, right? We, we are never stopping live stream. Right, that that it's an entry point and an and an opportunity for accessibility for people, but the experience just isn't the same. And that, to me, is my point. That I understand what you're saying about your discomfort when you're in a packed sanctuary. Uh, for me, right, I feel kavana uh, hearing other voices daven with me in a way that I never was able to do on Zoom. And so there right, is that theatrical experience, uh, even. Yeah, I know I mentioned like all Marvel movies, but big event films. And I think Dune was supposed to be a big event film. When you saw those sandworms for the first time, uh, right, almost killing right. Lady Jessica and um, Paul, like you should be like screaming or cheering. Like that's part of going the experience of going to the theater. Yeah, but but you have that in event movies. Like Marvel movies, you know, have applause lines. They have... They have they have cheer points. Um, many movies, maybe most movies, don't have that. Right? Uh, that um, that I actually had this discussion with somebody once. I said like movies are designed to be a communal art form, a public art form, and 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 the person I was talking to really pushed back hard on that. They're like, no, that's the um, that's the way in which the art has been largely experienced. Uh, primarily, like historically, because that was the only way it could be experienced. You know, like before people had TVs in their homes, and before before the technology to deliver whatever, right? So, um, uh, 
So I don't know, you know, there are plenty of movies that now I watch that I'm perfect, that I'm just as happy, maybe even happier watching them at home than it would be in the theater. I'll give you an example, right? The Irishman, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, I think it's the most recent Martin Scorsese movie. Now or... that should have been divided into two parts. Right. So, okay. So I watched The Irishman like a TV show. I watched it in like half hour, 45 minute chunks. And I may, I mean, Martin Scorsese probably says I missed out on something in the experience of doing that, but I liked it fine. I thought it was a good movie. Um, and I think I appreciated it more because I could, uh, I could, I could take it in installments. Um, uh, so I don't know, you know, I was watching, um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, la uh last night and most recent episode, and maybe, uh, one day we'll, we'll do an episode of, on Curb Your Enthusiasm. If you want to encourage Jesse to, uh, have us do an episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, at him about this. Um, but, uh, um, Larry David gets, uh, loses a bet and has to go to synagogue. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and his friend's wife, who's, you know, his sort of like frenemy uh, in the show uh, says, oh, you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to uh, really uh, enjoy it. You'll see. And he says, no, I'm going to uh, be bored for 90 minutes and regret every second of it. Um, and I think that that is like the thought crossed my mind, like that by and large is how most Jews think about synagogue. I'm going to be bored the whole time I'm there and regret, but what if you could take synagogue, not Jesse's synagogue, but everybody else's synagogue. Um, <laughs> um, but he said if, it, I didn't say it. He said, it. but what if, what if I could attend synagogue in 15 minute spurts, right? In other words, like, like it's not that the service is 15 minutes. It's that I can be in the service for 15 minutes and then pause the service, go take a walk, have a snack, stretch my legs, come back, unpause it. I could fast forward the parts that I'm, that, 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 you know, that's like yeah. the dead space, you know? I'm, I'm not disagreeing with, with any of that, Mike. What I'm disagreeing with is that the intention that Dennis Vanvenu wanted to give the viewer was one of a theatrical experience, I think. He and most directors of Warner Brothers projects are still pretty pissed at Warner Brothers for their same day, uh, theatrical release and streaming release deal with HBO Max for 2021. Um, that's not the issue. To me, the issue uh, is, yeah, I'm happy that I could pause it, that I could watch it in installments, that I could go to the bathroom and not miss anything, all of that. Uh, I just wonder if I would have liked it more in the theater because I didn't love it watching it at home. Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, but listen, I think that like the, you know, of course the artist wants uh, the experience of viewing the art to match a the intention with which they created it and be the optimal environment for for viewing it. Um, what I'm saying is that um, you know how much should that matter, right? Um, and you know, listen, maybe I would have uh, enjoyed the movie more had I seen it in the theater. Maybe not. Maybe I would have like you know been uh, been just as restless during the during the um, less than interesting parts of the of, of the movie um, with like less options of what I could do without missing so more 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 antsy about it right um, so maybe that would have happened I don't know um, I don't know if you know if like when Duncan Idaho comes on the screen uh, there's you know there's a, a deus ex machina moment where, where, where he shows up um, 
I don't know if that would have ended up being an applause line in a crowded theater. Maybe, um, although you know there 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 are probably uh, fewer um, fewer diehard fans of Dune uh, than there are of Marvel properties. I, I would have to imagine that's true. It's certainly less well known than a lot of Marvel properties, right? Uh, famously, you know, Marvel had to start out the cinematic universe with um, with Iron Man and Captain America, which were lower tier characters in its canon. Uh, but I don't know. I never read an Iron Man comic before seeing the movie Iron Man, but I had definitely heard of Iron Man, right? Um, I like I knew what the costume looked like. I definitely knew about Captain America. Um, and I don't know, I'm not a huge comic book person or, or Marvel fan, you know, for that reason, I'm sort of a casual observer, right? Dune is a, is a little bit more niche. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's a big deal to Dennis Bienvenu, um, and, uh, and, and a corner of the sci-fi loving, um, you know, uh, ecosystem out there. Uh, but, um, but I don't know like where the theaters are that are packed to the gills with Dune fans that are, you know, just waiting for the first appearance of the sandworm. No, I think that's fair, but that to me, which, speaks- which, which makes it a lot more parallel to the experience of like of, of Jewish life. Right. Um, In liberal to, Jewish circles. That to me speaks more to um, that the movie may not have been that good. Right, but that that's a whole separate conversation. Mike, I want to dig deep into the movie itself. Yeah. Um, right. You you uh, mentioned that this movie was really a take on um, Western colonialism on the Middle East, or at least that was the the nineteen sixty five novel's intention. Um, certainly, it's about a caste system, and the the Fremen, right? They just want to be free. They want to be left alone, and. Uh, the house of Atreides is basically saying, we'll leave you alone. We just want the spice. We want to treat you with respect where the Harkonnen really wasn't interested in treating them with respect, but to be the quote unquote good master still has a system of master and servants. Right. Yeah. I think that, that, you know, um, arguably, you know, the, uh, the, the Harkonnens are maybe like the British in this drama of, uh, of, of, you know, Western colonialism, uh, uh, in the Middle East, uh, or the French, maybe, uh, and uh, um, uh, and the and and the Atreides are the Americans. Um, but as you know, as as we now in America very well know, uh, being a slightly more benevolent master uh, in 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 the Middle East, uh, where your primary relationship um, is you know control and exploitation of resources. I mean, that's you know the 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 primary reason that America uh, uh, has historically been entrenched in the Middle East. I mean, there are, there are other reasons as well. Um, uh, but, and, and, you know, this isn't a um, foreign policy podcast and I'm not a foreign policy expert, but that's my, that's my sort of uh, casual observer's sense of things. Um, that, uh, that, you know, we, we know, we know full well, especially post 9-11, but even before that, um, about how, uh, many people in the Middle East view uh, America's uh, involvement, right? That we could, you know, we could bring a lot of 
good and benefit to the people in the Middle East. We can try to be more benevolent than the British and the French were, more respectful of uh, the various cultures that that exist within the Middle East as, uh, than the, certainly the British and the French were. Uh, but but ultimately, you know what we what we want is oil. What we want is uh, geopolitical. What's best for us? Right, dominance. What we want is what's best for us, um, and secondarily, we want maybe what's best for uh, for you know the 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 people who have to live in that region every day. And we're, we're talking about this, by the way, in the shadow of, of a report that just came out yesterday, I believe, um, that uh, in 2019 uh, the U.S. military dropped a 500 uh, 500 ton bomb uh, in Syria that that killed. Um, uh, that killed uh, uh, scores of women and children, and uh, and didn't report it, right? Just just tried to bury it, uh, and the New York Times uncovered it. Um, and that's the, you know, that's uh, a significant part of you know America's relationship with the Middle East, and we're the, and we're uh, theoretically, you know, the the good one, the good guys. Um, and so I think that that Dune really shows that. Um, you know, and, and it also shows how um, uh, how uh, money and uh, power, uh, dominance and exploitation, um, uh, you know, how it drives people and how it impacts people on the ground. I think that that's something about which Jewish tradition probably has a lot to say. Yeah, you know, we also come from a textual tradition where so much of our story is about um, the exodus and about freedom. And yet chapters later in our Torah, uh, we are given the rules for us to uh, enslave other people. Uh, And it's a really interesting idea that you would think that if we were slaves for 400 years, we would take that into consideration. And yet the reality is this, uh, that our text teaches us as long as it's, uh, it isn't, it isn't true uh, that we are enslaved and it doesn't matter what we do and how we treat others. Um, I think our tradition is not as clear cut about that. It talks about business negotiations. It talks about, um, and right, giving everybody the benefit of the doubt and all that. But uh, our, our textual tradition speaks at great length about us having control other, over other people. Right. But I think that, you know, if you, if you get to the, first of all, the core values that are, that are, I think, present within the tradition or, you know, uh, if I'm, if I'm being an academic about this, these may be disputed in some circles, but to me, right, the notion that uh, that that a human being um, can't be um, in any way seen primarily as a means to your own selfish ends, right? That you have to treat other human beings as human beings, um, as uh, equally created in the d- divine image as you, right? And and so you know, I think that uh, both that you know both House of Treaties and House Harkonnen. Um, don't see the Fremen that way. Um, arguably, the House of Trades does better. Certainly, the Emperor doesn't, right? He just sees Arrakis as a as as a uh, resource to be exploited, uh, and the Fremen are an obstacle to that. Um, and uh, um, so, you know, and and I think the House of Trades sees it that way too, right? 
they're an obstacle to the resource. It's just a matter of like how you want to deal with that obstacle, right? Is it is it better to uh, to deal with that obstacle by you know uh, treating them generously than it is than uh, what the Harkonnens do with just like steamrolling them, right? And so that's that's the but nobody's having the conversation about whether except for maybe now Paul who um, who is having visions of uh, Zendaya Zendaya. Um, who's, you know, who's uh, uh, one of the Fremen um, and so sees in some way his destiny is bound up with the destiny of the Fremen, like maybe he'll come to realize that. I haven't read the books, so I, I don't know and I can't say. Um, but the other major play, and, and also uh, my favorite, Duncan Idaho, um, uh, lives for a time with the Fremen and has, with the Fremen and has uh, some, uh, has, has cultivated some significant respect for them. So there are people within the universe that see the Fremen um, as more than just an obstacle to extracting spice from Arrakis. Um, but I think that that's ultimately what, you know, uh, the lens that Judaism would want us to have in our relationship, you know, to something like, to something like colonialism, um, to something like, you know, economic uh, exploitation, to something like our, uh, just, you know, uh, taking it much more small scale like you did, our business relationships, right? If I own a business, do I see my employees um, as resources to exploit or as human beings with whom I partner um, in uh, producing a product for market, right? And those two different lenses uh, make all the difference in the world in how I relate and how I treat those employees. And I think that Judaism, it, it's, you know, system of business ethics, um, sees, uh, sees, you know, sees it primarily in the latter category that, or in the form, in the, in the, in the, yeah, the latter category that, that, that if I'm an employer, or if I'm a business owner, I, I treat my employees as, um, uh, um, they don't need to be necessarily like my, equal in the level of the hierarchy of the organization to treat them as fully equal human beings and as, and as partners in getting a product to market. Um, it also works the other way too, by the way, right? And Jewish law, I think, uh, deals a lot with this, that, um, that employees um, have a responsibility, Jewish employees anyway, have a responsibility um, to, uh, to, to see their employer not just as a, uh, not just as a paycheck, Right and not as you know um, an, a, an obstacle standing in the way of vacation time um, or you know uh, so you know, and there there are plenty of instances that one can think of of uh, of employees um, taking advantage of uh, their employers too maybe not as many examples as one could think of in the other way around but it's a reality that we live in people take advantage of each other and don't treat each other as equals whether wh wherever they are in the in the um, uh, social power dynamic. Um, so, I, so I, I think that uh, that um, that's that to me is you know at, at the heart of it is that you know Judaism would say you know what's what's the what's the moral lens that you're taking to these relationships. I wish the uh, and maybe part two will go there. I wish the movie offered that as well. Right, the, the movie, and maybe that's the idea that uh, Timothy Chalamet falls in love with Zendaya and she's going to show him that the free men are people too and that they shouldn't be ruled over. I don't know. I, I, I don't know where the story goes. I haven't read the books. I think uh, 
uh, David Herbert's son like came out with something like a dozen additional books, uh, sequels to it. So I don't know the world that he built. Um, I don't know if Dennis Van Venu will go in that direction. Um, I just know that um, I wish what you just taught us was what the movie would have offered because at least it would have given me something to be inspired by. It didn't give me anything. Um, and that I think was sort of my issue. Well, yeah, but I think that it, it, just to be um, fair to the, to the work, um, I, you know, and I think that that um, speaks to uh, how, how Marvel has uh, impacted your brain. Um, there are, um, uh, you know, in the world- Or the dark world rules. <laughs> there are, um, it's not always so clear you know, the lines between heroes and villains. Um, and I, I think that what the movie shows is that, um, is that some of these things are complicated, right? Um, so, you know, um, there was a, there was a, a time in, in um, uh, your style of literature uh, or a philosophy that, that talked about, you know, like the noble savage, right? Which, which was, is in itself uh, sort of an objectification of, uh, of non-Western peoples. Uh, but the idea that like, you know, the, the problem is like Western industrialized peoples and we just left the Native Americans alone, um, like, you know, they, they would have been, um, uh, they would have been, you know, like model human beings. And, you know, the, I mean, I, I'm not saying that, that, that Western settler colonialists shouldn't have left Native and indigenous peoples alone, but what I'm saying is that people are complicated. Um, whether they're Western industrial people or, Indigenous peoples, people are complicated, and uh, and and you know uh, do heroic things and do monstrous things, and I think that that's um, that's present in the universe of Dune too. Um, that um, you know that uh, that the Fremen, um, I suspect, even though one might be really sympathetic to their to their cause um, and their desire for freedom, I'm not so sure that they're the heroes of the story. Um, certainly the Harkonnens aren't the heroes. No, they, they almost killed Paul. Right, right. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and the Atreides, you know, have the trappings. Uh, we should, we're, we're supposed to, I think, expect them to be heroic. Paul is supposed to be on, on the hero's journey. But I think his journey is, I hope, going to be more complicated than that. I think that that's very Jewish too, by the way. I think the Torah does that. Uh, you know, the heroes of the Torah are very complicated figures. And um, the rabbis try to smooth out some of those edges of, of, uh, of, of, the, of the Torah's central characters, you know, Abraham, Moses, those sort of people. And Jacob is great. He never deceives right. his brother, right? Right. Esau is all evil. Um, the picture that the Torah itself gives, taken on its own merits, is, is a lot more complicated. And I think that that's because the Torah is a very um, uh, emotionally, psychologically, socially sensitive uh, document, you know, way ahead of its time in, in that respect, um, that, that recognizes that um, people are complex and you can root for someone even while recognizing that they are going to make some very bad choices. See, that is something that I could get behind, right? That, that it's not black and white in the complexity of what makes a hero. And maybe that is really the, the future, right? Of this franchise that, 
Um, there are no pure hearted individuals that even the who we deem as sort of the victims that they are somewhat flawed and those who we expect to do heroic acts, they too are flawed as well. Um, and then the lesson from our faith is really that that is true for all of us, right? That, that we are constantly, Rivka has fighting inside her, uh, Yaakov and Esav. Um, And the idea is that both nations will be important, that inside us, we are constantly struggling to be one person or the other. Um, And we have to work with, you know, when we talk about Yetzir Tov and Yetzir Ra, we use the word evil inclination. And it's a word that most people can't truly understand because we misuse the word evil. It's not evil like um, you know, pinky to, to your mouth, like Dr. Evil. Um, it's evil, like selfish that Yetzir Tov, I'm thinking about others and Yetzir Ra, I am only thinking about myself. Uh, and that's sort of the reality that, that we are in. Um, and to me, that's, that, that's what we can learn from this, that from these mistakes, we strive to be the best version of ourselves or a better version of ourselves, uh, knowing that we are flawed human beings. Uh, all I have to say to that is amen. Uh, and I know that we're uh, about out of time. So why don't we close on that really uh, powerful um, and inspiring thought. Uh, so check out Dune, HBO Max theaters. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you're excited about uh, part two uh, or will I roll and groan when it comes out um, and uh, we'll continue the conversation. And uh, as we approach the winter holiday season, we have lots of blockbusters on the docket. So lots of shows and movies to talk about in the weeks ahead uh, and lots of Torah to talk about as well. Until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care.